You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is Caroline Kay from carolinekay.co and you're listening to Snippets of Genius. If you're a client, show guest, weekly listener or friend of mine, welcome back. If you're new to the show, it's great to have you here and I hope that this is exactly the inspiration you've been needing to become the person you most want to be. Each episode is your reminder that anything is possible. I speak with the world's most impressive leaders, entrepreneurs, and innovators to share their stories from the big lessons to the unbelievable moments of taking their ideas global. Our conversations are your guide to burst your next opportunity wide open. This week, I am delighted to be talking to one of the most inspiring entrepreneurs that I have come across here in Italy. And he's given me the great privilege of coming on the show to answer questions about not only how he started an amazing business, but how he took that business global, how he's done partnerships with one of the biggest FMCG brands in all of the world, that's Unilever, how he's gone on to follow his passions and do more entrepreneurial efforts, become a motivational speaker, and a whole long list of other achievements as well, which I'm sure we'll dig into today. I am delighted to introduce Federico Grom the founder of Grom Gelato, and he is going to share with us today some of the journey he's been on to achieve such success and also what you can learn from him as well with your own dreams and how you can take those bigger and more global too. Federico, welcome to the show. What a presentation. Thank you so much. I'm super, super happy. Thank you. So I'm I'm, I'm super ready. After this presentation, I'm super ready for the podcast and free to answer to any question. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I have lots of questions for you today. As I mentioned to you, when I first connected with you, I was just so impressed with the journey that you've been on. And all I have is what's in the tabloids and the newspapers and what I've read. But I think it's just so exciting that at one one day, I imagine you and a good friend sat down and had a conversation about building a business. But if you could just take us back to that beginning and where, where it all started, how you decided to build one of the best ice creams in all the world. Yeah, at first, let me correct you. Gelato. That is very different from ice cream. Uh, (laughs) Technically. Technically. So we should use the word gelato. It was already a while ago. It was August 2002. I was working as CFO in in a multinational company and Guido, my partner in crime, my best friend, my little brother, was doing a enologist for different companies. So he was working in, a, in, a wine, in the winemaking industry. So he came across with a very simple idea and he told me, listen, Fede, we can make the best gelato of the world just selecting the best ingredients of the world. But you know, we were in Torino, the capital of Italy of gelato, and it was, to me, a stupid idea, actually. So <laughs> I really treated him badly. But this idea came in a moment... Why? My life was not so good. 
So I was not so happy of my position. You need to feel a little bit uncomfortable to make some changes. And so I kept this idea that looked immediately to me stupid. And I brought back to Guido a business plan, like 50 pages of presentation, like in the best way of the consultant companies and firm. And super well done. Was this to show him it was a bad idea? To show him, to show him, listen, Guido, you forgot because it's, it was like 15 days after the presentation of the idea that was done in a parking area. So a very simple way to present an idea. So I came, I came back to him saying, okay, your idea is a great idea. We can do it. We can make the best gelato of the world, but we have some problems. We don't know how to make any gelato. We are thinking to make a chain of stores, but we don't know how to open the first store and we don't have any money. And <laughs> so those are the three pillars to build up our company. And Guido looked at me and he told me, okay, let's do it 50%, 50%. And so it was clear to me that it was crazy, but with a long vision. And we started. We started studying. We started to study the, the sector, the competitors, how to make the first gelato. And yeah, suddenly after nine months, we opened the first store, 25 square meters in Torino. The full equity we put in the company, it was 65,000 euros. Both of us, uh, so both of us in, in 32,500 uh, each of us. Okay. And it was an immediate success, not expected. After one month, we had like people waiting in line for 45 minutes an hour for buying a Connor cap. Yeah, we, we, we created an instant success without expecting it. We didn't know anything about that. And this was really the ignorance transforming creativity. So we didn't know anything about gelato, anything about retail. And it was really the way of looking of the young kids with transparency, without construction behind. And it helped us to innovate. That was really the secret, the ignorance. Wow. So tell us a little bit more about that innovation, because those cues do not form on their own. It takes a little bit of that creative genius, I like to say, for people to see it, get excited about it and think that's worth queuing for an hour. So tell us a little bit about what was those secret ingredients and how did you take that out to market? But the secret ingredients doesn't exist, really. I don't believe in talent and unfortunately believe in hard work. So you become talented after 10,000 10, hours of hard work. And uh, yeah, we really started working hard. We ended up in working an average, uh, believe me, of 80 hours per week per 10 years. And, and yeah, the, the, the ignorance was meaning that, for example, we didn't understand why the pistachio should be pure green, the, the lightly green that is the pistachio all over the world. And, and we discovered that was a colorant effect. So chemicals inside to, to give this green, light green color. And it was not believable for us. So for us it was quality, quality, quality. And so we presented that pistachio, just to make you a very simple idea, that was brownish. Uh, that was the real color of pistachio. It was badly accepted initially. But then at the first taste, it was incredible compared to all the competitors. And we really innovated uh, without knowing it, uh, a sector that was super mature. So you, you, you do not expect to be in Italy and in 2003 innovate a sector that is 
not dead, but yeah, super mature without any innovation since the 50s in reality. We did it because we didn't know. That, that, that's, that's the reality. We didn't realize that we were doing something new and something that nowadays uh, practically all over the world uh, is copied. But their success was completely connected to an innovation that came much earlier than the others. So they, they, were, they, they, st they still uh, exist, a lot of copycats, but the first one has got a huge, huge advantage compared to the others. Absolutely. And it goes to show, asking the questions, why is it like that? Why is it green? <laughs> and just testing that out can do wonders to get you be a, a leader in the innovation space. And I want to fast forward now to 2007, when you crossed the pond and you went over to New York. I mean, that's quite a, a distance to travel. And I know you did your homework, those eight hours you put to work and you were looking through McKinsey's research, you were finding out who was it that, that eats ice cream the most in the world. I was pretty staggered to know New Zealand's are right up there. And then the Americans come next. So why did you choose America and not New Zealand? If New Zealand <laughs> <the biggest> one. <laughs> uh, because destination US was a great destination and you should have fun working. And we were in our first part of the 30s so fun was a major part of the of the work i had the myth of uh, of new york so we really had two options going in the middle of nowhere like in utah or phoenix to to talk about a hot place with huge commercial center or going to the best window of the world that is new york and and we I, I thought that New York was more fun. So we went to New York looking for the first tour, just based on the idea that the Americans are consuming much more ice cream, in this case, ice cream, compared to Europeans, for example. We all believe Italians, we, as Italians, we all believe that we, we are the greatest consumers of, of gelato in the world. It's not true. In US, the consumption is that is a different consumption, but is the double. So we arrived in New York. We didn't know practically anything about about New York. We opened the first location in May the fifth. It was the a party Cinco de Mayo in New York, and the, the location was great. Was on the on the Broadway, at the corner with the seventy six. So great location again. Location, location, location is uh, is not a secret, and again the success was incredible we it, it was really incredible at the opening there was 100 meters of line people waiting for more than two hours and it was like that for the the following 12 months practically till uh, the crisis of 2008 that changed completely the the mentality the approach of to consumption of the new yorkers but not only and and it was super fun we, we really became overnight celebrities. They were asking us an autograph in the street. It was incredible. We had a full page of the New York Times and in two interviews at the Today Show at the NBC, all the magazine newspaper from Japan to US, just for opening a, not stupid, but yeah, a little, tiny, small uh, gelato shop in New York. And it was super fun. It was great. Yeah, I can tell that you absolutely enjoy your work and you were having lots of fun going out to the States at 30. But I'm so intrigued as to, you know, what made that anticipation and excitement build, not only in Turin, but also across the pond. You talk about getting a feature there in the New York Times, you know, getting that sort of coverage and being on some of the big TV networks. 
what were the stories that you were telling that really captured the interest and the excitement of the public? But the, uh, initially, we thought, uh, okay, how can we attract the attention? And Guido came out with a very simple but interesting idea. We prepared a zabaione that is a, an Italian flavor of gelato that is prepared with egg cream, including a wine. As wine, usually zabaione in Italy is prepared with marsala, that is a sweet wine from Sicily. We decided, Guido proposed to use the most famous and most expensive sweet wine of the world, that is a Sauterne, a French wine called the Chateau d'Iquem, a very rare wine, super expensive. So we prepared this crazy flavor with the most expensive wine in the world, or one of the most expensive wine in the world, and we, we didn't have the budget, actually. The whole budget for the opening was 5,000 euros. We spent 3,500 euros for buying six bottles of wine. Uh, we prepared for 500 euros a, a box, a blue box, grom color, with inside some samples and the invitation. And we hire a girl from the university, $1,000, just asking her to deliver the box to the different journalists in New York. And she didn't know who were the journalists and who, who, where was the, the headquarters of the newspaper. And, and he proposed to, to use an external agency. But we didn't have the money for the external agency. So we went to a bookstore. We bought all the magazine, all the newspaper. We look at the name of the journalist, at the headquarters in New York of the magazine and, and newspaper. And physically, she went there, bring the blue box. And it happened like that. I mean, the, the, the most interesting return on investment in communication ever, 5,000 euros and everybody were there listening at our story. At the end, probably the most interesting part was, yeah, the two young, crazy Italian guys going to New York for open a, a real Italian gelato for the New Yorkers. That was the, the, the fun part of the story. And then we had practically 10, 15 interviews per day for a week. So the, the funniest part and the stupid, stupidest part of the, of the story was that at a certain point, we started to in, in, invent part of the interviews. Like, where, where did you meet the first time? On the Everest, uh, climbing the mountain or playing... Uh, the final soccer game at the world championship in wherever because we were we wanted to have fun and we had fun actually and we are still friends with some journalists and yeah it was a an, an amazing week really that's incredible. brilliant did any journalists catch you out with their fact checking no. you know to see is no, it true <laughs> because it was it was clear that we were having fun and laughing together and, and yeah, at the end, having an Italian experience in New York. And that was really the point. We decided not to, to sell a product abroad, but we decided to offer an Italian experience in the 15 countries where we open a store or more stores. And that was the a key factor of success. So our store in Tokyo, in, in Los Angeles, in London, in Jakarta, in Hong Kong, in Shanghai, it was really a part of Italy. There was really a full experience of the Italian stores. We didn't never adapt our flavors to the local flavors. 
but it was really stracciatella, it was pistachio with a strange pronunciation that you can find around in the world. That was the experience with Italian guys behind the counter speaking a bad English like me, but it was it was part of the experience. And it was fun. It was fun everywhere. Oh, and how did you make the decisions of where to go next? You sort of like unpacked a little bit there how you decided on New York, but how did you decide on your growth plan and where you would go? No marketing research, but just emotions, let me say, good or bad, and uh, opportunities. So there was not a real strategy behind any decision. It was a mix between no's, feeling, and opportunities. So the second destination was... Uh, France and Japan, because we felt that the local food culture was so high, the attention of, to the ingredients was so high that there was a perfect fit with our idea of making the best gelato of the world with the best ingredients. And so we opened in 2008, the second store in New York, but the first store in Paris. And in 2009, the first store in, in Tokyo, and in Tokyo was again fantastic. The party the night before the opening was crazy. At the opening, we had like 200 meters of lines, 12 people managing the line because we couldn't stop the entrance of the stores in a place where the, 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 the people in the street is uh, Sunday, minimum 1 million of food traffic. It was the center of Shinjuku, probably the best location of Shinjuku, and it was again again incredible. And after that, other opening, like then we arrived in Dubai and yeah. But yeah, at, at the end, I repeat myself, no, no great strategy, but more emotion, more sensation, and more invention rather than yeah, a, a classic management style decision. I like that. And that comes in contrast, I think, to your background where you were in more of an analytical role where you were looking at performance metrics to make decisions and guiding. And then you're sort of tuning in more into your intuition as you struck out on your own. So what... Um, yeah, but I repeat quite often that uh, in any of us uh, is living a German and a Brazilian. <laughs> So probably in the first part of my life, the German was bigger and the second part of my life uh, is prevailing the Brazilian. So yeah, it's fantasy and rigor, emotion and mathematics. Any of us is like that. Probably in, in Italy, there is there are more the fantasy part uh, rather than the, <laughs> the other one. I love it. It's great. I think it goes to show that actually a lot of the knowledge that you probably built over those early years or those years working within companies gave you that solid foundation to be able to have that following your intuition, following your gut, because you have that really strong base of what works, what doesn't, you know, how to really lead yourself forward. So I think that's amazing. And I'd love to know if you had support while you were getting yourself going, was it you and your best friend together, Giulio, or did you have others to come in and help you? There's a way of saying in, in Italian that behind a great man, there is always a great woman. Saying that I'm not a great man, behind a little man, me, there is a great woman. That is my loved wife today. We, we recently had a big party for our 20 years anniversary. So after 20 years, I can say that every time I come back home and they find a smile, I find love and I find a, a, a nice environment to de-stress myself. This is the secret of the success. 
and also somebody to whom speaking about problems, about uh, people mainly. And that, and this is the secret of my success. Oh, that's a beautiful one. And we have the same expression in England. So <laughs> I'm really happy you had a great one for you. And so tell us if you had sort of the three big lessons that you feel you've learned over this period of growing Grom, what would you say your three big lessons were? People is the first lesson. Without great people, you cannot do anything uh, in your life. My tension is to find somebody around the table with me that is better than me. If it is not better, doesn't have any sense to have with me. It's not necessary. And I like really to fight and, and discuss and listening to somebody saying that I'm doing something stupid and challenging me. Then at the end, a company is not a democracy. So I'm the only one taking a decision and taking the risk at the end, but I take in great consideration the people I'm working with. The second is being humble. You, you have a success, small or big, and, and you feel uh, like to be Superman or a hero. And, and the, the, the big mistakes is just behind the corner. So be humble, stay quiet and repeat to yourself that making big mistake, it's a big experience and you should do it, but do not exaggerate because the, the too big means to fail big. And the, the last, I think that concentrate the effort locally is better than going everywhere before having enough strength, enough financial effort uh, to become uh, international. So that, those are the three essence that I would give to myself 20 years ago. I did mistake uh, regarding all of the three uh, <laughs> I <laughs> have absolutely no doubt. And I think that leads me nicely on to what would you say was your hardest moment in your journey? My hardest moment was in 2011. There was a concentration of uh, different difficult situation. The, the most difficult one was the car accident that my business partner had. It was a bad car accident. It was in August and I came back to the hospital having the idea that life was short for him. And, and I lived the, the next year or so doing everything by myself, but happy that he was coming back from death. It was hard psychologically and it was hard because I was working crazily. But this moment came after just another difficult moment in 2011. It was March the 11th. It was, I still remember, it was 6.46 in the morning. And listening at the news, I received the news as we all received in the, that morning about the earthquake in Japan and the tsunami. And we heavily invested in Japan. Uh, we had uh, two stores in Japan, uh, three new openings the, the same year. And it was, it was a very difficult, very difficult moment. So these two combined with other small bad things that year, 2011 was really a year that I would repeat just because I learned many things, but psychologically it was, uh, it yeah, was hard. That's, that's a test for anyone. And, and what were the... I suppose what helped you through that difficult time when you say you you could do it again because you learned a lot what were the things that helped you get through it from a mindset point of view or habit point of view 
Yeah, my mindset always when there is a problem, but it's an attitude. I, I was probably born like that, it, finding a solution to the problem. So I'm always uh, too optimistic, probably. I, I have an ego that is bigger than uh, the necessity, but I think are characteristic part of uh, any entrepreneurial spirit. So you believe you are better than the reality, but this helps you to approach any problem with the idea that you can solve it. And any problem it arrives, I believe it is solvable. And if it is solvable, I work hard to find a solution to solve it. If it is not solvable, forget it. It's, uh, it's something that I can sell. That, that's my approach and that's, that is something that helps me with the stress life that I have. Oh, that's a great one. And I think there's a lot to be said for your attitude and positivity to help you through, especially all of these things, which are massive external factors out of your control, especially in a new market that you went into and, and problems with health where there are things that you can't control. So taking taking hold of what you can control and your attitude is one of the biggest things. So I think that's a great one. So fast, fast so, forward yeah. to us to maybe then some of the Unilever perhaps came knocking on your door. That must have been an interesting one. Yeah. Oh, it was interesting because when they knocked, I mean, it was a, a big, big, big fish of the organization. Because when they knocked, I mean, it was a, a big, big, big fish of the organization in a very big organization. Unilever is a huge company with, I think today, 180,000 employees, 50 plus billions of turnover, knocking on our door, finding a way to collaborate together. And my first answer was, guys, thank you. We are not interested. So the first day was um, quite interesting for them more than for me. And uh, then they came back and it was quite fast. I think that the, the old process in three months, uh, we handed with the, with the sale of 100% of the shares to Unilever of Grom with a me. And the, 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 the final decision was taken thinking to the people and thinking to the private life and the dream. So the main idea was uh, the eternity to the dream. So Grom was our dream, was our baby. We, we started with four employees. We ended up uh, 12 years after with 1,000 more or less employees all, all over the world more than 100 stores and uh, finding a partner giving eternity to your dream it was a clear factor of the decision that was taken grom is the name of the company but is also my surname so the idea of putting this baby in good hands with the respect of the mission with the respect of the quality of the product uh, was something that convinced us in continuing the negotiation, ending up then to this uh, to this end. Personal part of the story was that 2015, so it's been already seven years ago, I moved myself from the role of son to the, to the role of father. And yeah, all my life was in, in one company. So I invested the old money I had in 2003, 32,500 euros, 12 years after the company was, yeah, 1,000 employees and 100 stores and... And Unilever came, the responsibility of becoming father changed completely my attitude 
to the risk. I was thinking before Unilever to consider some diversification of my investment that was 100% in one company, in one sector, in one dream. And then suddenly everything happened. End of September, we signed with Unilever. End of October, I got married. December the 10th, um, Romeo was born. And so, yeah, moving from 2011, that was the worst year of my life, uh, to 2015, that was my best year of my life. Yeah, this is a good transaction. Transaction. And, yeah. But you stayed with the company for a long time within Unilever. Yeah. Talk us through about how that, that worked for you and, and how that made it. Perhaps was it easier for you by being still involved in the business? Was that part of the negotiation to stay steering it? But I stayed in the company four years as a CEO, another three years as a consultant and brand ambassador. It was super good. I re really learned a lot. I used to work before in, in multinational companies, but with diff different roles. I really learned how a company so big is managed, positive and negative things that are inside this super big organization. And it, it, these four years really changed my knowledge, my approach to business, approach to organization of the companies, internal communication, how to better organize a company more structured with more processes and less invention and less emotion. And I believe that this had me a lot to move on and, and learn how to mix better my German and Brazilian sides. <laughs> so what was it you learned from Unilever? Could you give us some highlights? Yeah, the most interesting part was how to structure a marketing approach based on brand, while before was for us yeah, more sensation and intuition, and then move to a DNA design of the brand to to explain to everybody externally and internally how a brand works. And Unilever is a fantastic marketing machine managing brands in all different sectors from ice cream, of course, where is market leader, to soap with Dove, to many, 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 many brands, to other food and, and the ability to manage the brand fixing the rules and then following the rules uh, with an organization that is based on managers and not owners entrepreneurs was uh, was was a great lesson the second lesson was uh, that is important in a big organization internal communication with uh, actions so as entrepreneur i more accustomed to do things rather than communicate things. And I learned that it's very important also to communicate what you do. I'm, I'm still in my process to being a better communic internal communicator, but it's something that I learned absolutely. That's amazing. That's great insights. And what were the benefits of being a better internal communicator and giving that power to the managers over the owners? What were the benefits that came out of that? The benefit is that a big organization do not know what you do in your area, even if you are an important manager in a company, but you are a little gram of sand in the long beach. And internal communication give the knowledge to everybody what you are doing positively and also negatively, because for me, it's good to let everybody know what is doing well and what you are not doing well. 
and and the ben- the final benefit is support you need support and support means of course uh, freedom but also money and in a big multinational there is somebody else deciding for you for example for the money and and it's crucial to have a financial support to complete your task to complete your project to complete your dream and oh that's great advice and just thinking on reflection of all of this knowledge and understanding what old practices do you think that business owners now need to shift to achieve success today but for me transparency is a keyword. This word today is based on trust. We cannot hide anymore anything. That was a practice very used in the past, very used. Hiding the results of, of the company to the employees, uh, hiding the future project, uh, hiding the recipe of your product, hiding your production, hiding everything believing that the competitors can copy you, that consumers cannot understand you. For me, transparency today is a key factor for creating trust. And, and that's a magic word that I never forget. And this was a base of, on Grom and is a base of my daily life. But all those fears uh, that so- you had about people, which are normal fears. I think most entrepreneurs have it. If I give my secret sauce, if I tell my recipe, if I tell them my latest innovation, somebody will take it, go off and do it on their own. So what's shifted for you to make you realize that actually transparency is where the, the gold lies? There's, uh, there's no secret today. You can copy the Coca-Cola recipe that officially is, is uh, hidden, well hidden uh, wherever in US. Uh, you can copy the Coca-Cola making exactly the same product in uh, five minutes. The, the, the secret is uh, hard, hard work uh, and market. So all the rest, uh, it's something that people will know anyhow, anyway, with the, communi- the fast communication that we have today, with the social media, with Facebook, with Instagram, uh, with all the employees that they can make a picture, they can take uh, information uh, and sending on Telegram. So it's better to anticipate that, uh, being completely transparent, stay true to your scope, uh, to your mission, respect uh, the customers more than yourself, uh, and uh, being transparent with them, with all the suppliers, with all the employees. For me, it, it was an attitude that I learned because I worked previously in companies where they were hiding a lot. Uh, I was CFO in a couple of these companies with all the information in my hands. Uh, I was trying to push the entrepreneur, the owner, to um, distribute the information to the employees, uh, to have them aboard in the in the mission and it was decided exactly the opposite so this is my approach and i'd love to know then if you're happy with the transparency and to trust our listeners what are you working on now can you tell us what you've got in the in the pipeline yeah i mean the main idea is that i i i had a great uh, first half time in my life financially super successful so today I'm trying to have a second half time uh, with an impact on the community I live, uh, on the society, and and this is not charity. It's really having an impact uh, and uh, with a positive in- impact on the life of people, 
So learning is e-learning is a sector on, on which I'm, I'm enjoying very much and I'm investing very much. And secondly, I am working in my local community for free to help the city to to have a better impact on the on the on the population. And the last but not least, I'm now a wine producer. The fact is that I'm living in a region that is kissed by God. I'm living in Piedmont, Piedmont with the region that is called Lange with Barolo, Barbaresco is, is, is creating some of the best wines of the world. And for me, the respect of the land, the respect of terroir, that is a magic French word. There's no translation in English, no translation in Italian, means really not just the land, not the south, southeast, the sun and the wind, but means also all the population around working the vineyards, uh, working in the, in the winery, all these should be respected. And uh, so treating as best as possible the nature in such a likely situation, you have, uh, you have a great product. That's the, only, uh, that's the only approach. Respect the nature and uh, uh, the result of the nature is something magic that brings us uh, some of the best, best wines of the world. So the, the rest is just uh, some friends, some good food, and, uh, and the game is done. Oh, it sounds like you are bottling the magic well and truly there. So tell us, what's the name of your latest vineyard? Or... The company is called Muramura. And it's a name that means literally slow, slow in Madagascar. And is the spirit of life, the, the quality of living in Madagascar is really the carpe diem. So take any moment to live slowly your life, listening of the feelings, uh, tasting the life properly. Do not exaggerate with your iPhone, with uh, your iPad, with your PC, laptop, computer, and so on, and have take some time for you. And this is the approach of Muramura, that is an ecosystem where we produce wines, where there is a relay with few rooms, super nice, where there is a restaurant with excellent food. And this, re this is really a place where to forget the, the stress of daily life and take your moment for yourself. That is the meaning of Muramura. That sounds wonderful. I can't wait to visit. That sounds perfect to me. Please, please. <laughs> Please. I'll be right there. We'll do a special episode when I come to you. So just a few quick fire round questions for you now, if that's okay. Please. Okay. Absolutely. What are your top go-to resources to inspire you? I'm a lucky member since 12 years of YPO. That is an international network. That means a young president organization. And the smallest part of this organization is called the forum. That is like a, a small private board. Uh, with uh, nine people, eight, nine people, depending on the size of the, of the forum. And there I find uh, my inspiration, my discussions uh, openly, not only on, on business, uh, but the topics are, yeah, business, family and personal. And the uh, YPO and YPO forum is, is yeah, it's my part of, of learnings and confrontation with great people. Oh, fantastic. And is that something anyone can join? Or are you invited to join? How does that work? Oh, it is a su super famous organization in US, especially in Middle East, in Southeast Asia. Less in Europe, I would say. You are invited if you are CEO, president or owner of a sizable company 
if you should be invited by someone else and and you can join in this organization that is nowadays 30,000 more plus members all over the world there is quite a long waiting list in some countries and uh, yeah the, the 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 idea at the end is growing together meeting great people with external resources this is something that i i believe is very helpful and then this private board where you can have trust and share your insights is is a great moment of of learnings oh, fantastic and how do you define success for you ooh I define success as serenity and freedom. Ah, oh, beautiful uh, words. Th- I think that those two words are, yeah, are, are reassuming uh, all my thoughts about uh, success. So tell us, what's one piece of advice you would give your younger self? Luckily, I received this advice when I was 27, 28. To make a long story short, I was working in this company. I was CFO of the Italian branch. And the big boss was an English guy, fantastic, Andy, 35, 36, so pre- pretty young for being the, the CEO of the group. And with the percentage of the company, 10% of the company, while the, the, the rest, 90%, was in the hands of an investment fund. It was 2001, and we were working on selling the, the old company to a Canadian investment fund. So Andy was working as crazy. I was working on the Italian side, due diligence, blah, 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 finding an agreement on the price. 150 million marks. It was, let's say, 150 million euros. And I was meeting Andy every week for two days and two nights. So I was discussing with him openly. It was a friend. He became a friend and saying, oh, Andy, you will, you will have 15 million of euros. You will beca- become rich. And I was excited for him. And he was excited too, actually. We discussed all the summer. We worked during the, the, the summer season the, uh, in August. At the end of August, we found a way of uh, writing down the contract. Uh, we were ready to sign the contract uh, September the 14th. September the 11th, something in New York happened. And the Twin Towers uh, were bombed down. The day after the Canadian fund called us or called Andy saying, for us, from today, the price is 75 million. Andy didn't sell the company together with the investment fund. He didn't get his 15 million. And the week after we met again and he told me, I asked him, Andy, I'm very sad for you. I'm feeling badly. I, you, you would have changed your life, the life of your family, of your kids. And Andy looked at me and he said, it's all experience. And with one little phrase, he explained me how important is failing, but learning from the failure. And, and I was 27, 28. And still today in the different companies, but in Rome, at the end of the year, we were giving a prize for the worst mistake of the year. And the worst or the best mistake of the year is something that uh, if you make a mistake, but with all your effort, studying well, all the details, uh, doing whatever you can for being successful, it's better than 
a little success that you obtain without any effort. And it's the Andy secret. So it's all experience is a great advice. That is fantastic advice. Thank you for sharing that. And so if you're having a tough day and things are not going your way, what's one music track that lights you up, and makes you feel you can take it on? Led Zeppelin, rock and roll. And where can people find you if they want to connect and get in touch? I'm not a fan of social media, but quite often I'm going to Instagram. And my Instagram is Fedegrom. And yeah, it's, it's the funniest social. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. The one where you can have the most fun sounds right up your street. Definitely. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and if you had one ask for the listeners, what would that be? Think about your second half time if you were enough successful in the first half time. That's a great one. Federico, this has been fantastic. It's been such a thrill to have you on the show and sharing your words of wisdom. I can't thank you enough. Thanks to you. It was, uh, it was great. Thank you very much. And that's a wrap for this week. But before I go, can I just remind you that you can also watch snippets of these episodes on YouTube. I really hope this was an episode that helps you on your journey. So please continue to spread the learnings as you take them from this series. And remember, there is no silver bullet. Opportunities are there for you. So chase your dreams with the knowledge you can do anything you set your mind to. Because anything is possible. Stay curious and enjoy every minute of the journey and I'll see you very soon. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.